Oh, good morning. It's Mel Tempest from the Gym Owners Business Podcast. And today I'm speaking to Bobby Capiuto. How are you going, Bobby? Hey, what's going on? A lot, a lot. So we're going to be talking about global conventions and workshops, what club owners need and expect from them. What I wanted to chat to you first up was about what is your expectation when you go to a convention or a workshop as a participant? What is your expectation of what you should get at the end of each day? My expectation, personally? Yes. Well, anytime I go to an educational event, I look at education in three domains. And there's a lot of confusion about what these domains are. When you take a look at whether it's it's a subset of human resources or whether it's a standalone department in the company, you always see things like training and development, learning and development. And people get very confused as to what those two terms mean. And a lot of times people think that, well, development is the continuity of basically training. You do training for a long period of time and you get development and not so. There are subtle but extremely meaningful distinctions there, Mel. The triad that I expect from any speaker is, well, there's two triads actually that have to converge. Let me talk about the first one. You know, the three guiding questions in any presentation is the why, the what, and the how. And let me break this down. So one domain is tools. You know, if, and I'm going to say something really simplified, just so we understand, let's say I went to a workshop and we were talking about how to utilize the TRX. And when I walked into the room, there were no TRXs in the room. Well, that's a problem. So people can usually wrap their head around that. I need a tool in order to be able to execute what I'm learning. But then we get into training and training is critical. And all of these are critical, actually, because If you remove one element, tools, training, or development, the learner suffers. The participant does not have what he or she needs to go back and execute with a powerful effect. And training deals with the domain of exactly what to do. These are the strategies I have. These are the techniques. These are the tactics that I'm going to employ. But then you get into the realm of development, which deals with not necessarily what I'm doing, but who am I being? I'll give you an example. You walk into a hotel and they've all been trained on their scripts. And some people recite the same exact script in spite of you. I mean, you could, you could walk in there and say absolutely anything, the most shocking things. I mean, the rudest things that would make a sailor blush. And certain individuals would not go off their script. Now, I'm not recommending you do that. It's a lot of fun, but it's kind of inappropriate. Other people, you walk in and they have the same exact script, but the script is only the surface. That person loves what they're doing. That person's fully present, fully engaged. Are you telling me that you're going to get the same exact experience from those two individuals even though the words they're saying are exactly the same. And anybody who's been living in the world more than three or four days would say, of course not, that's absurd. So what's the difference? The difference is development. The difference is context that creates the framework for how you apply the content. So that's one domain, training, development, and tools. The next domain has to do not so much with what's conveyed, 
but the source, not the message, but the messenger, the presenter. And I like to call this E3. And E3 stands for engagement, evidence, and empowerment. So whatever it is you're telling me, I'm not going to learn it and be able to recall it optimally unless I'm emotionally engaged. So think about your brain as a castle. And surrounding this castle, you have a moat. And in that moat, you have crocodiles. And standing at the front gate of this massive castle is a man with a hood and a giant axe. <laughs> Pretty much an ominous image of your brain. Now, imagine that if I make it past that moat and I get to that gatekeeper, that gatekeeper is your limbic system in your brain. Now, there's a particular structure in the temporal lobes or just buried beneath the temporal lobes that's part of your limbic system called the amygdala. If you took a laser beam and you shot it through your left eye and then another laser beam, let's say through your left ear, the point at which those two beams would intersect would hit a structure that we're referring to the amygdala. Now, the amygdala is asking one particular question. Anybody who is you know, around our age, Mel, and who's into cinema will recognize this question from the Marathon Man. It's pretty terrifying. And that question is, is it safe? And if the answer is, no, it's not safe, well, there's kind of like a relay center in your brain, the thalamus. It, it, think about um, Lily, Lily Tomlin, um, Saturday Night Live. I don't know if this is a good analogy, but she used to play the role of the operator where she would get calls and she would relay where the call went and it would get kind of nuts in there. Well, she would be, Lily Tomlin would be analogous to your thalamus in the brain. And if the message that comes back is it's not safe, well, information is directed away from the thinking, rationalizing, executing center of the brain, the prefrontal lobes, and it's directed towards fight or flight. So you've got to engage somebody. You've got to make people feel safe. You've got to make people feel inspired. You can't be inspiring unless you yourself are inspired. You've got to make people laugh. You've got to basically draw people in emotionally before you can plant seeds intellectually. But the next step in that process of E3 is evidence. You know, there's a lot of speakers that are very compelling. And I think it was Tom Purvis who said, beware of the articulate incompetent because they're dangerous. They can make anything sound really good and plausible because they have enough conviction. However, where'd you get this from? You know, if you're going to say, well, research says, well, how was the study done? You know, what was the methodology? You know, what was the sample population? Are they statistically relevant? Is this something that you just did in your own business? So is it anecdotal? And just because something's anecdotal doesn't mean it's irrelevant, but just say so. Where's the evidence to support what it is you're saying? And the last component is empowerment. And this is what my friend Scott Hobson would call a hook to hang the information on, which is what exactly can I do? What behavior can I engage in? What can I execute immediately once I leave this room as a result of hearing what I've heard today? So if you don't have those two converging triads within any presentation, you're not going to get an optimal result from that presenter or the content he or she is delivering. 
So, Bobby, do you feel that the industry as a whole is delivering your expectation? Well, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of a hard question because the, the answer to that is yes and no. I go to presentations and a lot of times I hear things being delivered and I walk out saying, wow, that was fantastic. I got a lot out of that. Now, did I get a lot out of that because each of those six criteria were met? Or did I get a lot out of that because I really like the speaker? Or maybe I'm just, I have a confirmation bias towards the content being presented because I think it's really cool. And sometimes maybe they're presenting something I completely disagree with, which engages me because now I have to play devil's advocate in my own mind and look at things from a perspective I don't normally look at. But for whatever reason, I walk out of presentations very often, very satisfied. But then again, there's other presentations I walk out of. I'm like, wow, that was a massive miss. Something, and it's usually the same things that, that, that it, it usually has to do not so much with the content, but the delivery that makes me shake my head and say, wow, I wish I can get that presenter in a room for two to three days. Yeah. <laughs> what a horrifying thought for them. And just go to work on what actually creates transformation in a human being. How do human beings learn? What's actually inspiring? And what's a waste of time for you and for the person in the seat? Because I feel, and this, this is how I feel as a club owner, that I know that there's some absolutely fantastic speakers out there. And I'm not saying that there's not. But I feel that some of them, not all of them, have lost their way in what they deliver in workshops. I feel that... A lot of speakers are going out there and targeting the content of the workshops to middle and high level and that we're forgetting about, you know, the lower level people, those that perhaps don't quite understand maybe some of the stuff that you've spoken on earlier in today's podcast. And I feel sometimes when I go into a workshop and I watch people leave, I ask myself, why are they leaving? Are they leaving because the topic is not what they thought or they're not getting the tools at that present time so that they can go back into their club or back into their their um, you know their office and start to implement. I feel as an industry that we've become too complex in the content that we're delivering and the everyday person, and there's more everyday people than there are middle level and higher level people, and we're just not delivering the goods to them. Can, can I just ask, just for clarification for the people listening, yeah. when you say lower level people, who are you talking about? So what when position I, okay. specifically? Easy. Independent club owners who are new to the industry. Personal trainers who are new to the industry. Independent club owners that have been in the industry for 20 or 25 years who have been afraid or are fearful of taking that step to progress the business that they have to the next level. So therefore, they're still trapped in the, the 70s and the 80s because what's happened is we haven't engaged them over the years in the workshops to help them along the way to be able to upstep to that middle level and, and that high level. There is a great deal of health club owners out there that are still way, way behind with where our industry has gone and we no longer have the workshops that they can understand in layman's terms. And I don't mean that to insult them, but it's, it's a hard reality that there are a lot of people out there that still haven't progressed in the industry with technology, with programming, and with many other aspects of the business, and they're still trapped 20 or 30 years behind. And then we have the other end of the scale where we have these amazing, young, energetic 
young people coming into our industry who haven't been taught enough in the RTOs, and that's definitely a, a fact, um, who need to also be taught from, from a layman's point of term. So that, that's where I'm coming from. So I'm not saying, you know, poorer people, uh, people that live in uh, a lesser, you know, lower socioeconomic uh, no, I, I, yeah. I, I knew you weren't getting at yeah, that. I just wanted yeah. to know, like, are you talking about the frontline team? And if so, are you talking about salespeople? Well, are you talking about it. service managers, trainers? Bobby, it affects everybody, doesn't it? If the club owner is living in the past, the frontline team are living in the past. The trainers are living in the past. So it's an overall effect within the club. So it, I suppose really I'm saying the club owners, the people that make the decisions, we need to have workshops that are more suitable and more the content is more understandable for them. Well, another question we need to ask, to be fair, is when these people walk into a presentation, what are they expecting to get? Because a lot of times people, I think, walk out of presentations because the the way the content's being delivered initially doesn't equal their expectation. It's kind of like this. Every health club chain has run into this where they train their trainers up on a new induction or orientation, whatever you call it, just that first session. And the trainer sits there and somebody comes in, a member, and they're going through all this information and they're asking all these questions. And let's say that every question that's being asked is critical. It's questions that deal with what somebody wants, why they want it, what they've done in the past, what they've enjoyed, not enjoyed, what's worked, not worked, what they think might get in the way. It's proposing solutions. But somewhere around the 10-minute mark, most members start to push back. Even though there's nothing wrong with the process, the process is focused on the member. Even though these are critical questions, the member will ultimately say, hey, I, I thought we were going to go work out. Now, here's a member who would rather do anything. They, they, they'd rather get a root canal than go exercise for a day. And they're saying, wait, wait, wait. I thought we were just going to go around the floor. What's going on? And what's going on is fear. Like, um, imagine it like a rubber band. So my bottom hand, let's say, is where I'm currently at within my business, within my life, my current skill sets. And, and this is something that I'm not happy with. And my top hand, I grab the other end of the rubber band, and my top hand represents where I want to go. That's my upward trajectory. It's what I want to be, have, and do. Right now, the further these two points get from one another, the further my expectation of what should happen gets from my reality, what starts to happen to the tension on the rubber band? Well, obviously, the tension starts to increase. Now, human beings are tension mitigators. We don't like to have a lot of tension. You know, um, Dennis Waitley said that most human beings are tension relieving rather than goal achieving types of people. I don't necessarily know if I agree with that 100%, but there's a lot of evidence for that. So when, when where you are versus where you want to be, right, expectation versus reality, when that gets too far, the tension builds and you just want to reduce the tension any way you can because you're afraid. So I'm going to walk out of the room. Another, another trap that people fall into is if the speaker gets up in front of the room and says something that I do not agree with. In today's society, there's no gray. 
it's black or white. Yep. And you're either right or wrong. And it's easy to spot people who are wrong, Mel, because people who are absolutely wrong are clearly people who have insights and beliefs and opinions that counteract, contradict my own. So obviously they're wrong because I have to be right. And that's a trap because sometimes it's the person who says something that you might not agree with that is the most valuable person you can sit there and listen to. You just have to ask the question in your mind, where is the evidence? What has this person done? Not what they're saying. What have they done to be able to earn the right to get on the stage? But don't look for consensus and agreement because then you never get to think differently. So that, that, that could be another reason is managing your own expectations. What do I want to get out of this? And sometimes maybe the speaker just goes in a different direction or maybe they're just tangenting or, or maybe the speaker's just very boring. That tends to happen as well. Death by PowerPoint, one of the most harmful tools, I think, when used inappropriately, and, and some people make a case for when used at all, is a PowerPoint presentation. If you're a subject matter expert and there's not a visual aid that somebody absolutely needs, why do you need a PowerPoint? Yeah, I, I'm not. A, I have to agree. I'm not a PowerPoint fan. I've been made to do them for myself, and um, I forget half the time that they're there anyway. But anyway, that's not what we're chatting about. Can we just take a step back? You, you talked about the tension with the rubber band. How do we relieve the tension for the club owner that's going to these workshops? Because you and I both know that sometimes what's in the what's in the script in the little magazine that says you're going to attend Bobby's workshop and he's going to talk about that and then we rock up and Bobby doesn't talk about what's in the in the paragraph mm -hmm. that's in the brochure that's happened to all of us and we've yep. all left those types of workshops but let's let's talk about the situation where we've got club owners and personal trainers sitting in the workshops you know and, and we want to relieve that rubber band for them what are some of the things that we as speakers can do for these people to make it so much easier for them for when they go back to the club to implement. For me, I'll tell you what I don't like, and then you can give me your thoughts on this. I hate going to a workshop, Bobby, and I'm sitting in there and I'm taking some notes. And I think this is really cool. And I can see the clock up on the wall. And we're getting down to the last 15 minutes and I'm waiting for the how, the how, the how. And then the speaker says at the end, and if you want to know more, just come down and buy my book down here at the front. Or if you want to know more, just come and see me at the end there. And, you know, you can come and join one of our industry, you know, roundtables. And I'm not pinpointing anybody there, but you can come and join one of our networks, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to do that stuff. I want to be given the stuff then and there that I paid for when I purchased my convention ticket so that if I choose to go back to my motel room that night and start to implement some of the things that I've learned that day, that I've got the, the five or six tools there lined up ready for me to do that. Now, that's my expectation of a workshop, and I know a lot of other club owners expect that. And what's happening is this rubber band that we were just talking about, we're not relieving that rubber band because our club owners aren't getting those tools. Well, I mean, if, if, if you take a look at the analogy of the rubber band, expectation versus reality, or where I am versus where I want to be, the only way to alleviate the tension is to bring your two hands together again. And so that means you're either going to have to elevate your current level of expectation, or you're going to have to lower your level of ambition. It's one of those two. Now, in the situation where you're talking about somebody gives you a 90-minute sales pitch when you, what you were expecting 
was a presentation that was in the description, that's a little bit unethical. I, I would choose never to listen to that speaker again. I'm not saying that I have an issue with a 90-minute sales presentation. I just want to know that that's what I'm rocking up for in advance. So I agree with you. If I'm going to a conference and I think I'm going to be getting answers on this particular topic and I don't, well, that's going to make me a little bit cross and it's probably going to affect my selection of speakers the next go around. If it happens enough, it might affect my decision to sign up for a conference. But, you know, I, I just want to unpack something with the how-tos. I absolutely believe that the how is critical. When we get back to tools, training, and development, you know, we could say that training is the what to do. The tool is the how to do it. And the, the development is why am I doing what I'm doing? You got to ask yourself before you walk into the room, what exactly am I expecting? And when you're in there, what is useful? Not just a takeaway that I can implement. Is there any insight that increases my capacity? Because it's almost like you ever, um, <laughs> there's a lot of complaints going around about this. You ever have a smartphone and they send you an update and your phone works better. Wow, that's good. They send you another update and your phone works even better. But the next update they send you, your phone gets a little slower. And then the next update, <laughs> yeah. your phone just doesn't work at all. What was the problem? The problem was that your phone couldn't handle the sophistication of the update because it's the capacity of the operating system was outdated and therefore not sufficient. And a lot of times people rock up and we've talked about this and they go, well, you know, if I'm sitting in a room for one hour, you know, rather than hearing all these stories and three takeaways, I'd rather hear 10 takeaways and just walk out and do it. The chances that you will do that effectively is slim to none. Because without that understanding and that capacity, without the context through which to filter the content, you're probably not going to do it because you're human. And if you did it, you probably will not do it as well as you could have. Because if you think takeaways are, are the critical element between doing something and not doing something, and all of the other messy human stuff in learning, yes, motivation, yes, understanding, doesn't factor in, ask yourself with all of the information we have available today, on why smoking is one of the worst things you could do for your brain and your body. Why do so many people smoke? So you're, you're calling me from Australia, and Australia has one of the most aggressive anti-smoking campaigns in the world. So I'm looking at a pack of cigarettes with a picture of a skeleton smoking. Is there any chance that I'm misinterpreting that and going, Oh, wow. What are they trying to say? If I keep smoking, I'll look thinner. Wow. Excellent. Or you look at a five-year-old kid smoking a cigarette. That's another ad. Nobody looks at that and says, are they trying to say that smoking will make me look younger? No, it's clear what they're saying, yet people still smoke. And a lot of times we have altered. Um, I, I, I think, let me unpack that. We're, we're very bad at objectively predicting what our behaviors will be. 
Here's, here's, a very, here's a very short example. At Warwick University, Dr. Jim Calvert took 32 moderate to heavy smokers, and they just basically asked them questions about their smoking habit. So, you know, um, do you think that ads that you read on cigarette cartons, are they effective? Yes or no? And people are like, yes, like unanimously. 32 said they're extremely effective. You know, I look at them and they're terrifying. Well, well, how do you feel? And most of the answers that came back were, I either get terrified looking at these or I get very angry. I get very angry that I can do this to myself and my family when, you know, it's clearly so dangerous. So they said, okay, let's pop you into a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, fMRI, and take a look at your brain. So they put them into the brain scan and they showed them the same exact cigarette ads. Now, if the person inside the machine were afraid or they were angry, again, the amygdala would light up. But that's not the part of the brain that lit up. As a matter of fact, the amygdala had very little to say about the subject. The part of the brain that lit up was the ventral striatum, which is the front bit of a part of your reward pathway called the nucleus accumbens. And this part of the brain regulates not just reward, but anticipation of reward, meaning every time they saw that very terrifying, yet clear and concise information about the dangers of smoking, it made them desire a cigarette. So a lot of times we don't really know what our intentions will be and what our behaviors would be. If you think that you would just get this information or do this, say this, um, you know, add, add this up. This is how you work this. And okay, here's how you execute an exercise. And you're going to walk out and you're going to utilize that. You, you might be surprised at how your actual level of compliance is not as high as your anticipated level of compliance. When I was the director of professional development for the National Academy of Sports Medicine, we would see this. We would see people learning different strategies, different programming um, strategies, different techniques to apply and assess and modify exercises, and trainers would be doing the same exact thing they were doing prior to taking the education when they went back to the facility, and they did that for a lot of reasons. So when you're going to see a presenter, you got to be very clear on what exactly do I want out of this? What's one or two takeaways that are most critical? And also ask yourself, what was the best presentation I ever went to? Why? And sometimes it's not what you did as a result, but it's the insight and what you were able to understand and the mental shift that occurred. So be clear as to what your expectations are, but at the same time, be open and evaluate, is this true for me? How do I use this? And this time next year, what exactly will I have accomplished as a result of attending this workshop? Because that directs your mental focus to specific elements within the presentation that might be very valuable to you. Because we, we all have continuity gaps. So, Bobby, if we walk into a workshop, okay, so you're saying be very clear on your expectation of the workshop. So the club owner mm -hmm. walks into the workshop, they get two takeaways. Tell me, why do they fail to implement then? So now you're saying, so I, I, <laughs> That's I, a question. I, I take on your advice and say, right, Bobby said, 
just go in and just get two takeaways. So I go in, I get my two takeaways. I walk away from the, the, walk, the, the workshop. Why do I then fail to implement? There could, there could be a million reasons. And, you know, first of all, whose responsibility is it to implement? I mean, if you're getting accurate information, if you're getting accurate, if you're getting relevant information and efficacious information and other people have used this information, you know, did you fail to implement or did you go and implement it? And the very first time you tried something, it didn't work out. So you spoke to three of your colleagues and they agreed, yeah, that won't work. And then you didn't implement it again. You know, what was your expectation when implementing it? Did you seek, did, did you seek help when you were implementing it? Is the situation in your facility exactly the same as the scenario that was given from the stage? I think I would suspect that very few people perfectly implement anything the very first time you try, you know, because anytime you implement something, Peter Drucker, this is, this is something that I would love to talk to Robert and Michael about maybe another panel. You know, Peter Drucker said that the most important customer you have is your internal customer. It's your team member. It's your employee. Because unless you're doing every sale, unless you're training every single client and greeting every person at the front desk, they are the filter through which the experience of your facility is disseminated through. So anytime you're going to get a result, you're going to have to scale it across multiple people and people are messy. So is it... it did I did I not implement it or did I try to implement it and it didn't work? Or a couple of levels removed from me, did somebody not understand exactly what it is that I was trying to get them to do? And how many times do I follow up with the people who I've delegated to? Exactly how do I delegate? And what does that conversation look like? Is it here, just do this? Or is the delegation process a little bit more intensive and a little bit more specific? Quite honestly, I, I see a bigger problems with implementation than information. And, and I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. This happens all the time. And, and th there's two parts to this. A company will say, okay, we're going to roll out a new training system, whether it's a new software system, whether it's a new um, exercise program, or whether it's a new sales system, and you get everybody into the room, and how the company prepares is the worst possible way you can ever prepare, which is they put every single detail on the deck. And here's why they do that. Because they don't have faith that once the best and the brightest, and who's the best and the brightest? Well, it's the people in the top positions, of course. Once they hand that over to a presenter, they do not believe that multiple presenters throughout the company can disseminate that information effectively. And that's because they put very little time into actually coaching effective communication. And then they wonder why they have to roll things out over and over. So the person in front of the room has this deck of about 180 slides and the text is really small and there's bullet after bullet after bullet and they go through it next slide, next slide, next slide. And then a room of, and, and they'll throw in one or two role plays, which are very poorly done. Just to say that they've applied the information at the end of the day, they send these tired people out, probably managers, and they have to go now teach somebody else what happened in that room. And then 
they say, man, we've got great sales systems in this company. If only our frontline people wouldn't keep screwing it up. Well, that's shocking. So it's not the information. It's the way the information was being delivered. And it's the, the emphasis on information rather than coaching how to implement it. And that's a big gap. So before you, before you want to go to a session at a conference and think, great, now I have the information, Bob's your uncle, everything's all good. That's, that's kind of like somebody rocking up and going to, an, to a group X class and going, oh, thank God that's over. Now I'm fit for life. And they go home and sit back down on the couch. Well, that's not a very good strategy. I agree with that. I agree with that. So what you're saying, it's not so much the information, it's more, is it the person that's implementing it at the very beginning? It could, it could be a myriad of reasons. And, and you know, on this call, all, we're, all we can do is guess at what it could be. But from what I have seen, you know, a lot of times it, it's, we think that people are computers. If we put the information in, well, we'll get the exact output that we're looking for. Now, people are messy and training and development is messy, you know, and, and, you know, next time you say, well, we're going to have a one day training and you say, God, I wish they could do this in half a day. You know what? That's why you have to keep going to these things over and over and over, because if it was just about standing up in front of the room and delivering information, and that's it, you should be expected to implement it. I could send out a 20-page memo, just read the damn memo, don't even waste anybody's time coming to class, but learning and development involves so many elements that are critical and that have a lot more to do with just the linear dissemination of information, and when you go back and you explain it to your team, here's an example, if I was gonna give you something to do, I wouldn't say, Mel, okay, here's how you do it. Here's step one, two, three. Okay, let me role play with you now. You're terrified. You're trying just to not get it wrong. Okay, now do you understand what to do? And you want to make me happy, right? I'm in a position of authority and you shake your head. Yes, I understand. Not even a verbal confirmation. And I send you on your way. Maybe something better would be, Mel, let me explain to you contextually what we're looking for. I explain it. Now, Mel, would you do me a favor? Just so I know that I'm serving you as your coach, would you explain contextually back to me what we're looking to accomplish? Okay, if that's correct, I move on to, okay, Mel, here's the steps. We're going to run through them and Allow me to show you each step so you see how this all flows together. Once we're done, I'm going to have you take me through the steps. So I take you through all the steps. Then I have you take me through the steps. Now, at the point in which you're running into trouble or what you're doing is not necessarily what I thought I was teaching, I am going to stop you. And I'm going to go over that one step. And I'm going to show you that one step over. And now I'm going to have you walk me through that one step. Once you do that well, I'm going to have you run me through the process. And if there's another step that needs attention, we're going to stop at that step. And after that, I'm going to have you explain to me the steps. I'm going to have you demonstrate the steps to me. And then we're going to switch roles. And Mel, 
Now you're my coach and teacher. Train me on this, please. Now, would you agree that that process gives both people a much greater level of understanding about where their current level of competency is regarding implementation now? Oh, absolutely. And you know what you just described in scenario two is the exact same thing that happens when a a leading group fitness instructor takes on an apprentice group fitness instructor. And before they're allowed to go out there and implement their own classes, they need to be shown what to do and then the roles are reversed before they can go out there and teach it. And that's exactly what you just explained in scenario two. And I have to say, Bobby, I have many, many times when I first opened my club been that person in scenario one. And I know that there's been a lot of other club owners too. I I went to a workshop, I listened to what I wanted to do when I got back to my club and I just went in there and I said, do this, do this, do this, and I understand that you all should understand it and it failed miserably. And it took me, you know, a a couple Mm -hmm. of, you know, look, it could have been 12 months, two years, three years. You're still learning because even now, 15 years later, you know, the people that we speak to, they learn differently. So therefore, we need to, in order to implement things with them, we need to teach them differently because not everybody is the same. And I was definitely that person in scenario number one for a long time and then I mm-hmm. realised that everybody learns differently and that we need to take a step back and we then need to teach those skills to those people, to their learning, to their learning skills. But scenario two, whether you realise it or not, that is definitely, you know, that is something that happens in the group fitness room every single day. Um, you know, learn the choreography, learn the skill, come up, share that with me. Then you show me how you do it. Then we let them out there on their own, yeah. feeling confident mm-hmm. that they can take their class from A to B. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and, and also don't get frustrated with people who don't learn through the same sensory pathways or the same pattern or combination of sensory pathways that you learn through. You know, people are very different. So oh, yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, lack of information is not lack of intellect. So if somebody's not getting it straight away the way you're explaining it, either try to explain it a different way, or maybe that's not the learning pathway. That's the right stepping off point. Maybe that, like um, my fiance in her past life, she was in IT. Now, now me, if I could turn my computer on. I'm pretty impressed with myself. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, I'll ask her for help and she'll go, all right, let me show you. And she'll take it. And I was like, no, 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 you can't show me. I have to actually do it. You can't explain this. You can't visually show me what to do. I have to be on the keyboard. And she's like, I don't understand. Because if I, if I show her what to do, she would get it. And, and, and conversely, you know, she's now a screenwriter. She, she's, a brilliant writer. I mean, the things that this lady can write and how she can articulate, it's inspiring. But in a conversation, I'll say something like, I'm going to go to the shops. And she'll be like, what? What are you doing? Um, going to the shops? What, what do you mean? I don't understand. That's like, well, do you know, do you know what a shop is, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like that thing on the corner. You, you know what a bottle is, right? Bottle. Yeah, well, I'm going to the bottle shop, the shop where they keep the bottles. And she'll go, oh, 
why didn't you just say so? I'm like, oh my goodness. Oh my days. Like, <laughs> but if, if, if I would give her something to look at or read what I'm doing, she would get it straight away. Yeah. So people have different learning pathways. And, you know, we said this on the panel, uh, what was it, like two weeks ago? People go to a certification and after three months of study and a weekend course, you know, that's the beginning of your journey. That in no way, shape or form qualifies you as an expert. Yet you want to go into a 60 to 90 minute workshop and you think you're going to walk out with a perfect solution. You know, if that was an analogy going into a florist, you're not walking out of that class with a bouquet. You're walking out of that class with a seed. Now, you got to go back to that facility and you've got to plant that seed. And you can't just plant the seed and just leave it there. You've got to cultivate that seed. You've got to water that seed. And if you're not nurturing that seed, you're not going to grow anything out of that. So look at it that way. The information that you're getting gives you ideas. It gives you a technique. Go back and build upon that. It's, it's not a matter of what can I take and put into my people, but what can I go back to my facility and draw out of them? As a matter of fact, you take a look at the root of the word education, it's a duco or a duciere, and that literally translates to draw out, or in some translations, to lead out of someone. And that's real education and development. And that's why a lot of people in this industry feel, oh, well, training, it's expensive. <laughs> yeah, I think training's expensive. Try ignorance. It doesn't mm. work. We did that before. We got a guy in here or <laughs> we had a girl in here and stood up in front of the room. They gave us the information. We didn't see a result. It's like, really? Wow. That's interesting. You know, have you read what? Could you, could you imagine reading one book in your life, closing the book? And then that problem solved. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Bobby, you and I both know that ignorance over the years has cost a lot of people their clubs. And uh, ignorance has also cost people the availability to very talented people. And that this leads me into my, my I suppose, my next question. What do you think of storytelling when we go to workshops? Well, I'll keep this short because I'm very long-winded in a lot of these other answers. But if you take a look at how the brain learns, if you take a look at even the E3 system that I was talking about earlier, stories, analogies, metaphors are retainable. You know, you, if I asked you, and all cinema is, is a multimedia, multi-sensory medium of storytelling, and I asked you to recall your favorite scene from your favorite film, whether it terrified you, whether it inspired you, whether it made you cry, and you haven't seen that film in nearly a decade, you could still recall in vivid detail. Some people can actually recite line by line this, what was said in that exact scene. Yet if I asked you to recall page 53, line six, from the last book you read, you would not be able to do it. I mean, if you could, you're a genius, and I'm impressed. But 99.999% of the people cannot recall a fact, even though it was the very last book you read yesterday, 
but you can recall your favorite scene. Why? Because emotion is the gateway to cognition. And that's why. So if, if you've ever read Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, civilization, the very fabric of it, has been interwoven with a thread of stories. And it's always the same archetypes that are critical to cultivate, protect, and expand a society. So storytelling is the most powerful medium of learning and education we have ever been exposed to. Think about the film industry. Think about the music industry. Think about growing up and going to school and the great literary works that you were exposed to. Story creates the civilization we are in. Everything that you have learned, everything you know, the things that you believe, whether it's your political beliefs, whether these are religious beliefs, whether they, you know, whether they are philosophical beliefs, you got there largely in part through story. So anyone who tells you that stories are a frivolous waste of valuable presentation time is not someone who's highly influential in front of the room. They're not someone who you would learn from in, in a way that's highly or optimally impactful. And think about anybody you know who is an extremely successful world-class presenter. What is the one common element? Their backgrounds are different. Their areas of expertise are different. Their presentation styles, their personalities are different. But the one element of a great order is they are great storytellers and they attach practical information and facts and executables to that story seamlessly. That's what you remember. So... Uh, Storytelling is, is something that I'm extremely passionate about because if you go to any workshop on effective public speaking, they will always, always talk about stories. If you, if you get advice from an executive or a bureaucrat who doesn't have the capacity to hold a room, maybe they do presentations all the time, but it's kind of like death by PowerPoint and they delude themselves to think they're being effective, but people march into their presentations as if they're being marched to the gallows, that person is not the right individual to give you advice. Thank you, Bobby, for answering that one on storytelling because I'm very passionate myself, as you know, about storytelling and I've thoroughly enjoyed our podcast today and I'm glad that we finally got together to speak about conventions and workshops and just as a global chit-chat it was what I was thinking about um, during the podcast when you were discussing how Australia has the most aggressive cigarette campaign, you know, in terms of turning people off um, smoking, wouldn't it be absolutely fantastic if we could take those images off the cigarette packs and place them onto some of our food packs? Hmm. But, you know, here's the thing. Those ad campaigns are effective, but what you what you can, what you can get out of Gemma Calvert's research is that it's only effective for people who don't have those particular habits. So, in other words, smoking campaigns are not highly effective for smokers. 
they're highly effective for people who might become a smoker. So hmm, interesting though. It is. It would, definitely, it would definitely make a lot of food, a lot of healthy food choices disgusting. But, well, um, <laughs> yeah, but imagine what you could do, though, for the, for the younger generation in terms of food choices. I mean, let's face it. I mean, I know that I've seen younger kids pick up people's cigarette packs and go, oh, my God, that looks gross. I think, wow, that picture is as good as, as contraception, really, when, you, when you're teaching a 15 or 16-year-old about contraception. You need contraception, you don't need cigarettes. Wouldn't it be fantastic to have some sort of image on some of our unhealthy foods or some type of educational Snapchat on there that sort of makes you second think about choosing that option? Yeah, it could be. I don't know, but it could be. I mean, I've looked at some cigarette cartons and just the image that they show, it had the actual same effect as contraception. As a matter of fact, it was like, okay. (laughs) I'm abstinent for the rest of my life after seeing that. Well, there you go. There you go. It's a little bit rough. Sometimes when we read the food labels, 30 grams of sugar. Really? Do I need it? No, I don't. Yeah. I mean, we, we could have another conversation we could, about but how we many won't. people understand <laughs> what that actually even means. Oh, my God. Don't get me started. We are at the 15-minute mark for today's podcast with Bobby. Again, I always enjoy speaking with you, and I know that we've got a panel podcast with Robert and Michael coming up again in the next week or so. So all I can say right now is thank you very much for your time. I'm glad that we finally got it together. I hope our listeners get a lot out of today's discussion. Feedback is always welcome and Bobby's details will definitely be at the end of our uh, podcast in script form. Thank you very much, Bobby. Thanks, Mel. Thank you for joining the Gym Owners Podcast, sponsored and supported by National Fitness Business Alliance and Gym Click Media. Find Mel Tempest on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Join us next time for the Gym Owners Podcast.